Related to the earliest Europeans was another movement of people who expanded into the cooler regions of the northern hemisphere, Siberia. Even with tailored clothing, this part of the world must have been a doozy to settle. The great glaciers extended far into the Asian continent, and the general environment was very dry, with patches of hardy moss and lichen. But there were at least areas of refugia where the soil supported whole communities of wildflowers, grasses, fungi, and mammals large and small. People certainly made use of the resources here, because by 50 to 32,000 years ago, there are signs of occupation in the archaeological record. Genetic studies of ancient and living peoples points to a particular population that inhabited Siberia that today no longer exists as an ethnicity. These were dubbed the Ancestral North Eurasians, and while they were not the only people who settled there, nor were they the ancestors of Siberian groups today, they played a major part in the development of later ancestors on opposite sides of their range. In fact, among living people today, over 50% of them contained DNA from ancestral North Eurasians in significant amounts. Ancestors had moved towards the extreme northeast of Siberia by 28,000 years ago, and something very fascinating, and perhaps all too human, seems to have occurred. Remember that there were two primary movements of ancestors away from Southwest Asia, one that took a southern route and populated India, Southeast Asia, East Asia, and Sahul, while another moved into Europe and Siberia. At some point around 26,000 years ago, peoples from both these expansions entered the vast land of Beringia. This area, popularly called a land bridge even though it was comparable in size to mainland Europe, consisted of northeast Siberia and western Alaska, and the lands exposed between them due to the drop in sea levels. For reasons we cannot know for certain, some factors caused these groups of ancestors to become isolated in Beringia for a brief period of around 4,000 years. Peoples who seemed to have been hunters of large mammals like caribou, bison, and mammoth, and settled in small residential camps for part of the year. Over time, the family lineages of these peoples became intermixed, and they gave rise to brand new genetic signatures. Thus, between 24,000 and 18,000 years ago, the ancestors of the Amerindians, or Native Americans, had arisen. The settlements of the Americas is often a popular topic in archaeological circles, and had been plagued for many years by a lack of good evidence, both in genes and in the rocks. Nowadays we have much more findings than we ever thought possible, and this story can be told with reasonable accuracy. For starters, we can be confident that Amerindian ancestors entered the landmass from Beringia. One famous hypothesis argued that indigenous Americans had originated from northwest Europe. This is the so-called Salutrian hypothesis, and after a connection that was posited between early American stone tool kits and those found in Europe called Salutrian. This comparison was, honestly, flimsy, and the genetic evidence that was found in support of this model turned out to derive from the ancient connection to the ancestral North Eurasians, who also gave rise to many groups in Europe. So, no, Amerindians did not originate from Europe. Nor did they seem to come from the Pacific or Australia. The trace of strange genetic markers in some South American populations shows a connection to living peoples in those places. However, it seems that this may be an artifact of the Beringian standstill as some of the peoples from the southern Asian population expansion, including those that first populated Sahul, belonged to those groups that became isolated in the north. So in essence, the Beringian ancestors of the Amerindians were made up of a number of different genotypes from various places that became expressed in different ways as ancestors moved into the Americas. Just how they got there was another struggle to find out. It was assumed from the very beginning that Amerindians simply walked from Beringia to the mainland Americas, bypassing the vast glaciers that covered the northern reaches through a narrow sliver of exposed land between them. But there were issues with timing as well. 
All of the best geologic evidence we have tells us that this narrow ice-free corridor between the glaciers opened up around 15,700 years ago, but it was only until 12,600 years ago that the region was feasible enough for plant and animal life to colonize it. Given that this corridor stretched over 950 miles long, it seems unlikely that Amerindians used it as a route until that time. Even if they did move across it, and it seems that they did, these peoples would not have been the founders of the continents. A swath of different sites around the Americas points to much earlier settlements than 15,000 years ago. The most notorious is the site of Montverde in Chile, which was recently redated by better methods. This area appears to have been first occupied as early as 18,500 years ago. This is remarkable on two fronts. One, it demonstrates a very rapid pace that Amerindians took from Beringia, having been able to settle as far south like this. And two, at 18,500 years ago, Montverde was bordered by enormous glaciers that would have made the conditions very difficult for anyone living there. Maybe difficult for us, but we have to remember that their ancestors in Beringia lived in similar environments and would have been well seasoned to a place like this. A more recent hypothesis for the movement of peoples out of Beringia was by a Pacific coastal route. In essence, groups of Amerindians would have to have boated away from Alaska and island hopped down the western coasts of North and South America where they could have entered those continents from the west. It seems that this sliver of coastline was rich in kelp forests for most of the way, allowing these ancestors access to rich seafood. Several of the earliest sites in the Americas are along the western regions of North and South America, so there is some credence to this hypothesis. Without a way through the ice sheets, this seems to have been the only possible route to take. Not to mention that there is tentative evidence of even earlier occupations here, with the sites of Toca da Tierra and Pedra Ferrada in Brazil showing evidence of settlement as early as 22 to 20,000 years ago. The first Amerindians clearly were fast travelers and tough survivors, like all of our ancestors. At present, there is no definitive consensus as to what routes brought peoples into the continents, but in all likelihood Amerindians entered the Americas multiple times along multiple routes. There isn't a clear archaeological presence of humans in the Americas until 14,000 years ago, with several sites all along North America, Mesoamerica, and South America. Thus, by 14,000 years ago, Homo sapiens could be found on all of the major continents, with only a barely distinguishable few of the earlier human species left to share the world with them. Before I continue my history of the world, I want to bring up an important subject that is directly relevant to everything I've talked about here, and that is the topic of race. You might be under the impression that the different races of humanity evolved during this time of population expansions and isolations across the continents, but a more thorough examination of the physiological and genetic evidence we have tells us a different story. The practice of grouping living populations of humans into racial categories truly began during the 1700s in Enlightenment-era Europe. The word race derives from botany to describe different breeds of plants under the same species. When applied to humans, naturalists were factoring in geographic factors as well as surface features to develop their classification systems. At the time, Europeans had already settled in large parts of the Americas and Asia, and had been in contact with a whole host of different peoples who didn't look or act like them. And this was a curious thing indeed. Another social factor concerned the decline in religious thinking during the Enlightenment, which meant that the monogenesis model of human origins, that all people today descend from a single couple, Adam and Eve, as described in the book of Genesis, was being rejected in favor of other polygenesis models, where different peoples derived from different ancestors. Now combine this with some of the philosophical and moral attitudes of the time, where Europeans were gradually viewing themselves as superior peoples on the world stage, and you begin to see some of the first racial classification systems. 
People were being grouped based upon how they looked and behaved, and a key point was always made to emphasize people of European descent as the top of an imagined hierarchy, with Africans and other dark-skinned peoples usually occupying the lowest rings. One of the most iconic of these racialists was the German researcher Johann Blumenbach, who grouped the world's peoples into five categories, based upon where they were found in the world and what physical traits they possessed. For example, he uses the word Caucasian here, derived from an older work by another scientist who used it to denote the people of the Caucasus region, bordering Europe and Asia, where it was believed that the ancestors of Europeans, Southwest Asians, and Indians originated. Blumenbach writes about these people, who he believes are the most beautiful race of men. Many decades later, the Euro-American anthropologist Carlton Kuhn devised a neural classification scheme, this time tweaking the older systems but still producing a four-person system. Thus, the world was divided into the Caucasians or Caucasoids, Europeans and people of Middle Eastern and Indian descent, Mongoloids, East Asians and Amerindians, Negroids, Africans south of the Sahara, and Australoids, Aboriginal Australians and other descendant groups of those first Asian populations we discussed earlier. These terms persisted well into the early 2000s. Right from the beginning of the conception of human races, there were always immediate effects on the histories of the peoples described by them. Oppressive and violent regimes and practices were rationalized on the basis of race, where to be of another race was to be an other, and to be lesser than your neighbors. Race quickly came to represent an entire host of factors, where your social and economic positions, your behaviors, your beliefs, and even your temperament were supposed to be biologically determined by what racial group you belonged to. And there's a system of classification that has not gone away entirely. It still resonates deeply with people, for better or for worse. As a student of anthropology, I have come to understand just what science really has to say about race, and long story short, it's something that isn't expressed in nature and cannot be measured in any real way. At a basic epistemological level, race is a human construct. It was made by humans, for humans, to describe humans. Thus, the categories we choose are only important in human context. They don't exist in nature. And considering that people since the Enlightenment have developed anywhere between three and tens of different groups of peoples, there is no set standard for what groups are races or not. The genomic revolution has really opened the doors to our understanding of humanity, and there is no hint among the genetic makeup of all peoples that there are real racial groups in the world. All total humans share about 99% of their genes with each other, of which that 1% accounts for small genetic changes that have given rise to the diversity of physiologies we see today. That is not to say that geographic variation among human populations isn't a real thing. It most certainly is. Take, for example, the gene EDAR, which has been tied to different populations of people in East Asia. It seems that around 35,000 years ago, selective pressures gave rise to a number of traits that are commonly found among East Asians, including their thick black hair. But this gene is not unique to East Asians, nor is it bound to them, and can be shared among any other human being. And then there's skin color perhaps the most prominent feature used to group peoples. It seems common sense to talk about white people and black people as separate categories, but genetic evidence demonstrates that differences in skin color are really only tied to climatological factors and nothing more. Dark skin seems to have evolved in a tropical context, primarily to protect against the breakdown of folic acid, a nutrient essential for fertility and for field development. Skin that is too dark blocks the sunlight necessary to produce vitamin D, and so peoples in regions where sunlight is not as prominent tend to have light skin. A recent multi-authored study discovered that the entire range of human skin pigmentation originated on the African continent, and that different genes associated with it became more prominent as ancestors moved into different regions. We often think of Africa as a primarily black region, 
but there are indigenous groups there with a vast range of skin colors from light-skinned among the San of the Kalahari to very dark-skinned in the pastoralists of the Northeast. In fact, for peoples outside of Africa, the genes associated with light skin were relatively recent developments in some instances. We don't find light-skinned peoples in East Asia until 15 to 10,000 years ago, and as late as 3000 BC in Europe. So, these different physiological traits that are supposed to underpin these deeply ancestral races are actually relative newcomers on the scene, and even then make up only a tiny fraction of the entire human genome. When mammologists study large mammals, they hold that genetic differences between populations under a single species must range higher than 25-30% to 30 in order to be considered different subspecies. Because Homo sapiens is such a recently evolved species, and because they've only expanded across the continents at an even more recent time, they cannot be grouped into different races because not enough time has passed to facilitate the kinds of genetic distinctions necessary to do so. Scientists have looked for human races in our genes, and they have found nothing. In societal contexts, race does have relevance in discussions about human rights issues, but in a scientific or anthropological context, race has no place here. To quote geneticist Adam Rutherford, certain genetic groupings do roughly correspond to geography, but not exclusively, not essentially. How many races are there? It is unanswerable, and a meaningless question. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, we look at those pioneering ancestors of ours as they survived during the harshest periods of the Ice Ages. We see how the peoples of Europe, Siberia, and North America adapted to the glaciated landscapes and meet some of the bizarre megafauna they often relied on for food. While other parts of the world fared well during these times, the peoples of the Northern Hemisphere faced some of the most extreme circumstances imaginable. That's the end of this episode of On the River of History. If you've enjoyed listening in or are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com. Just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes. Just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at KillDearCheer. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story too.